Thank you so much. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And Central Avenue Church is most certainly an open, welcoming, and affirming congregation, for you have invited a Lutheran to speak today. <laughs> but I must say, I am not your typical Lutheran. Now, why am I here today? I'm here because I am a transgender Latina of deep personal faith. And I'm here today because of Matthew, the reading you did from Matthew today. I happened to preach on Matthew, uh, the Beatitudes, on Friday evening. And as you were reading that, blessed are those who are persecuted for pursuing righteousness. And righteousness can also be translated as pursuing justice. And now is the time when we need to be pursuing justice for those who hold power and privilege are doing everything they can to hold on to that power and privilege at the cost of those who have none. So we're praying this morning for those refugees and immigrants who are not going to have the opportunity to have the life that we have. And I'm also here today because Transgender people, non-binary people, non-gender non-conforming people, gender fluid people are being persecuted and harassed every day. If you don't fit nicely into that gender binary, you are the other. You are different. Therefore, you should not have the same rights as other people. And therefore, it's okay to be harassed when you want to use the restroom. And I'm here to tell you that is not right. That is not Christian. That is not what Jesus is telling us and preaching to us every day. And the best way I know how to do that, to seek justice, is to tell you about myself. For I have two favorite subjects, Jesus and me. <laughs> Jesus gave me great material to work, at, work with, and I'll touch on that in a little bit later, but really the way I found for people to really have some idea and comprehension is to understand a little bit about who I am and how I became who I am. Well, I was born in Boulder, Colorado in the year of our Lord, 1959. Yes, I am 57 years old and I earned every one of these gray hairs. Now that's important to tell you because Growing up in the 60s and 70s, I, I felt and was compelled by a Roman Catholic Hispanic family to live a certain way. I was the oldest son. I had a certain place in the family. Now in Boulder, back then we were all Mexicans. And there were about 25 families who lived in Boulder County. And my grandfather on my mother's side was a coal miner and a farmer. My grandparents on my dad's side were migrant workers. They came up from New Mexico and worked Boulder Valley Farms since about the late, early 1920s. And finally, in the 1940s, the Garcia settled down. Lorenzi showed up in the 19, my mother's family showed up in 1930s. And the rest of the little Mexican families came in from New Mexico and settled in Boulder County. And they were fairly well insulated. I have 41 first cousins. Yes, my, my aunts and uncles, 
went out and they multiplied, just like Jesus said they were told to. So, you know, when I growing up, I didn't have friends. I didn't need friends. I had cousins. And so I felt I, I had a certain place in the family. And because I was Sammy's oldest boy, I had a certain place in the family. I never sat at the kids' table. I sat next to Grandpa because I was the oldest. And so that's what I tried to do throughout my life, is show everyone what I was supposed to be and who I was supposed to be. Now, I was kind of a shy kid. So in junior high school, my mother urged me to go um, play in the church choir with my cousins, Virginia and Abe. And we played in a bilingual choir. So I learned how to play guitar and sing in Spanish. I still can't speak Spanish, but I can sing in Spanish. And then, so starting in junior high school through high school, between playing in the bilingual choir and the bluegrass choir and just loving church, I became a really, really good Catholic boy. I, it was nothing for me to go to church two or three times in a weekend, and if there was a wedding or a quinceanera or a funeral or something, then I could easily go to Mass four times a week. I love Mass. And I was praying constantly to God to make me the man I was supposed to be. Because I had these feelings inside that I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. You have to remember back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, the gay movement was just really starting. And in Boulder, it wasn't really starting much. It was mostly here on, in California where the hippies lived. We had our hippies in Boulder, but we kept them over at Beach Park. So I was trying to figure out who I was because I had these feelings that I just couldn't put my finger on. There was nothing called transgender. The closest that I ever came to having any type of role model was like Dr. Renee Richards, um, Christine Jorgensen, but they were freaks. They were an anomaly. They were something to laugh at. So I could not be that. I ended up graduating from high school and then starting college in 1978 at, at CU Boulder. And CU Boulder had just started a Chicano Studies program. And because my last name was Garcia, I was automatically put into the United Mexican American Students Association. And I was forced to take, or told to take, all the Chicano Studies programs. And so part of the Ch Chicano Studies program is talking about Cesar Chavez and, and Dolores Huerta and all the work that was being done. And we really got, we were told the church was using the people, that the colonization of the, of, of the Americas was done by the conquistadores who always had priests with them. So we were Catholics because we were colonized. So all of a sudden, the church in my eyes became the demon. Then, on the other side, God hadn't fixed me. As much as I had been praying over the last 10 years, I still had those feelings that I couldn't, I couldn't understand. So in my late, I would say late 20, late college years, probably 1981, 82, I just decided I needed to turn my back on the church. I didn't stop believing in God, but the institution and God himself, because I was really, really angry at God. So I just turned my back. 
And then I, I met new friends, started hanging out a lot with um, Jack Daniels and Jose Cuervo. And then in Boulder in the 80s, there were a lot of substances that entered my body that altered my thinking process. There was a lot of it in Boulder. So I just kind of partied my way through the 1980s. And in 1989, I woke up in detox and realized I was living in the back of one of my cousins, in the back room of one of my cousin's trailers. I was working at Kmart, um, stocking shelves, and I wondered, what happened to my life? I couldn't understand where I ended up where I ended up. So I decided to start going to AA, got sober, had a grudging relationship with God. Because one of the first things you have to do in AA is believe in a higher power. So I, I was like, yes, I still believe in you. Don't intrude in my life, and we'll be okay. So I spent a couple years sober. I moved up in management at Kmart, and I met this wonderful, beautiful woman who fell in love with me. So what the heck, let's get married. That would fix everything. She would make everything right. Now, I heard rumors in the family that people were, were, were kind of surprised that I got married because they thought I was gay. Well, I had, during the 80s, I had girlfriends and I had boyfriends, and you know, people would see me with different people until they made assumptions. So when I got married, they thought, well, we're really surprised you got married. We thought you were gay. Well, I had to counter those rumors. So what's the best way of countering those rumors? go into uniform. And the first, I got my post certification, my peace officer certification, and the first organization that offered me a job was the Department of Corrections. Why not? I'll try it. So I started working at a prison, and I had a manual, and I had good role models. So you have to understand, a lot of correctional officers are, one, either cop wannabes, so are the young guys who go in who haven't been able to get a job at a police department, so they go to the Department of Corrections so it looks good on their resume. Or you have the guys who are in their 40s and 50s who just retired from the military. You know, they spent 20, 25 years in the military. They retired in their mid-40s or 50s, and they're too young just to sit around, and the wives kick them out of the house. So they go back to what they know, wearing a uniform and bossing people around. So I latched on to Sergeant Gonzalez. Gunny. And he taught me how to walk, how to talk. I ended up in the emergency response team, so I knew how to yell, I knew how to beat people, and I fit in really well. They told me how to, how to do everything I needed to do to be a man. It finally happened. I knew how to be a man. The problem was, putting on that uniform was putting on a facade. And living a character and a play every day took a tremendous amount of energy. So as soon as I took off that uniform, I hung out with my friends again, Jack Daniels and Jose Corvo. So I would spend my days in prison, my nights I would end up drinking. And I usually worked second shift, so, and I usually had, like, had Monday and Tuesdays off. So I would get home from work um, probably around midnight, have a couple beers, a couple three or four shots, go to bed at three or four in the morning, and not have to get up and go to work until two in the afternoon, which meant I hardly saw my wife, which 
allowed us to stay married for much longer than we probably should have. Well, nobody likes being in jail. I didn't like it at all. So after five years, I got out of prison and went to work for parole. I had my peace officer certification. Um, it meant that I could carry a gun and a badge and work the streets. So I went out and started working the streets, and all of a sudden there, I was working pretty much Monday through Friday, had weekends off, and all of a sudden this other woman in the house was just driving me crazy. And I was driving her crazy. So we met in the living room, because I lived in one part of the house, she lived on the other. We met in the dining room one day, and she said, I want a divorce. I'm like, okay. She worked for attorneys, 90 days, $90. We were divorced, I bought a house, I moved out. And there I was. It was the beginning of November. And, you know, get, going through a divorce and selling a house and buying a house and then moving, you know, just everything was just, every minute was packed until about two weeks after I moved in. And there I was, sitting on my living room floor, with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a pistol, thinking to myself, what did I do? I had everything I was supposed to have. I had a beautiful wife, a brand new car. We had a five-bedroom house out just outside of downtown Denver. It was a gorgeous house. I had all the toys I wanted. I made good money. She made good money. There was nothing I could want for. Why did I walk away from it? What was so wrong? So I'm holding the gun under my chin saying, I can't do this anymore then I realized I couldn't take my own life. I put the gun down, and that's when I came back to Jesus. But it wasn't one of those, oh, please, God, help me, help me. It's like, all right, USOB, if I'm going to come back, you're going to step up this time. A couple days later, I'm sitting at my computer. Now, you have to remember, November in par for parole is difficult on everybody. Because that's when my offenders realized that they had burned a lot of bridges. So they were not going to be with their parents for Christmas. They're not going to be with their friends for Christmas. They're not going to be with baby mama. They're not going to be with their kids. So what did they do? They go out to their old friends, Jack Daniels and cocaine and meth. And what do I do as a parole officer? I go out there, kick in doors, and put them in back in jail. In January and February, I spend two months just sending people back to prison. And it takes a lot of energy and time. So the state employee... Um, State Employee Assistance Program sends out a message in November saying, if you're stressed, if you're depressed, if you're suicidal, give us a call, we can help. So I'm sitting there two days later looking at this message. You work fast. And within a week, I was seeing a, a therapist. Within a couple weeks, that therapist told me, I think you need some long-term help. Okay. So I went to another therapist through my insurance program, and it was a great, great, great experience. Marsha helped me through the initial stages. She got me to stop drinking. She got me onto, onto some antidepressants. And I told her something that I had not told anybody else. I liked wearing women's clothing. I finally said it out loud. And she came back and told me, that I should go to the Gender Identity Center of Colorado and go to some support group meetings. So I found a cross-dresser support group meeting. So I started going to that. So I met three or four other people who were like me. 
And then in March of 2000, 2003, there was a conference called the Gold Rush Conference in, in um, the Red Line Inn on the east side of Denver. So I went out and I bought a basic wardrobe and for the first time, I got dressed and wore makeup and did my hair. Well, actually, I was wearing a wig because my hair was still really short then. And I came out, and there were like 250 people who were just like me. It was incredible. So on Thursday and Friday, I went to all the workshops on how to do my hair, how to do my nails, how to walk, how to talk. It's really hard to walk in heels. How to walk and how to talk, how to present. And on Saturday morning, since I was sober, I didn't party on Friday night like a lot of the friends I had just met. So Saturday morning, there I was, 9 o'clock. The only workshop they had that I had any interest in and I had to go by myself was one in transsexuals. So I thought, I'll go in and just see. So I sat there and I heard my story. Ever since I was this high, I never quite fit in. I always got shooed out of the kitchen back to my dad and uncles because I was always with my aunts and my sisters. I always got smacked because I would be playing dress up with my sisters. I didn't know how to be a man, but I knew how to, how to be a woman. And it was during that, that workshop that I came to the realization I was Nicole. And the weight of the world was lifted off of my shoulders, and I finally felt whole and complete. And for the first time in my life, I felt peace. So I went home. I called my cousin Kelly, because Kelly and I have known each other since we were this tall. And I told her everything, and she's the only person I told I was coming to the conference. I said, Kelly, 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 guess what? I finally figured it all out. I'm not a cross-dresser. I'm really transsexual. I'm going to transition and live as a woman. Oh, I'm so happy for you. What are you going to tell your mother? <laughs> what am I going to tell work? I was working as a parole officer. It's, it was a very male-dominated profession. And even the females, the female officers, were more butch than the men. So I stopped, and I thought, I put together a plan. But as soon as I told Marsha, my therapist, that I had to I wanted to transition, she said, I'm so happy for you that you finally come to this point in your life and I can't see you anymore. My insurance company would not cover anything having to do with transsexualism. So I had to find another therapist, but which Marsha recommended. So I worked with Julie for the next three years. Julie got me started on hormone replacement therapy. Julie wrote my, my letter of recommendation for surgery. She helped me put together, put together a plan to come out to my family, come out to work, and I was amazed how much acceptance I got at work because those butch women surrounded me and protected me. And I transferred from the streets and I started doing an administrative position so I could transition right where they felt I was safer. My administration thought that the prolees would have an issue with a transgender officer. I was more afraid that I would be out in the streets and make a call that I needed help and nobody would show up. That I would be killed because they don't want to come help the freak. 
So I, I took an administrative position, I, I transitioned, and then I went back out on the streets. And as long as you are firm and fair and direct with the people you supervise, they respected the badge and the gun, but mostly they respected me because they knew everything I had gone through. Nobody ever brought it up, but they respected me as a person. My parents had a difficult time accepting me, but eventually mother came around and my dad died in, in 2005, and I ended up moving in with, in with mom because I had sold my house in order to complete my transition. So I've been living with my mother for now for just over 10 years. Now, back up a bit to that conference, that I, first conference that I went to. At that first conference, I met a woman who was also a police officer. And so we hit it off really well. We had a lot of things in common. And the one thing I had told her was that I had an awakening of my faith and I wanted to go back to church and find a place to celebrate my faith, but I knew I couldn't go back to the Catholic Church. Not necessarily because I was transgender, but because I was divorced. So she suggested St. Paul Lutheran Church in downtown Denver because she had been warmly accepted there. And of course, I told her no, because a Lutheran church was a church of the heretical, excommunicated, raving lunatic priest. But after the third time she told me, I thought, well, maybe I should listen. So I ended up going to St. Paul. And back then, it was you know, real early in my transition. I hadn't even started on hormones yet. And I just felt like, you know, a 12-year-old girl who had gotten into her mother's makeup and didn't quite know how to put yourself together yet. And I expected to walk into that church dressed as Nicole and fully expected people to turn and say, look at that man in a dress. But they didn't. They came up to me and said, how did you like service? Are you going to come back next week? And I did. And you know you're really part of a community when you're asked to be on a committee. I was asked to be in the Reconciling in Christ Task Force. So after that, I, was, I helped go to other churches and, and tell my story, my very young story about being given the opportunity to celebrate my love for Jesus Christ and celebrate the fact that I was a beautiful child of God. I got noticed by um, a national group called Lutherans Concern. And so in 2008, I ended up in San Francisco and got elected to the board of directors. Who'd have thunk? And because of my beautiful brown face, and because I am eloquent and articulate, and I am me, they started grooming me. So I started going to trainings on how to tell my story, how to reach out to people, how to conduct workshops, how to create walk with churches going through their open and welcoming program so that they can be a welcoming and affirming congregation. Well, I decided first that I didn't like being a parole officer anymore because I went into the Department of Corrections to prove I was a man. Well, it didn't work very well. 
So what part of the job did I like best? I was working with people, talking with people, trying to help people succeed. So I started my master's in counseling. So I went back to administrative position, went part-time to grad school, and then towards the end of my counseling program, I was thinking to myself, well, I do all this speaking, and it's kind of like preaching. Maybe I should make sure I'm on solid theological ground. So maybe I'll get a master's in theology so that I have some letters, more letters behind my name, so people will take me a little bit more seriously. And then in the, in the Lutheran Church, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, there is a process for everything. Long process for everything. So to become a deacon, you have to have a master's of theology or, or preaching or something. And the, the candidacy process is just long and grueling. And so I thought to myself, well, I've, I'll go to ILIF, which is a really good graduate school in, in Denver, and I'll just get a degree through them. But I never filled out the paperwork. Never quite stepped off the curb to cross the street. And then one day, Pastor Kevin at St. Paul was, having, was doing service at 7 a.m. on Thursday morning. And I used to go to service at 7 a.m. on Thursday morning because I'm a church nerd and I love going to church. And my office was right down the street, so I pulled over, go to church, and go into the office. Well, one day, Kevin is holding the host up and saying the words of institution, and it was there that the Holy Spirit said to me, you need to be a pastor. So I go up to Kevin after service and said, Kevin, I want to be a pastor, but I don't know how to do it. I can't, I'm not your typical seminary student. I'm trying to finish a master's in counseling. I can't quit that in order to go to a seminary and start doing the typical seminary thing. You live there for two years, go do an internship, come back for a year, you become a Lutheran pastor. Won't fit in my life. I'm like too old to do that. He said, Luther Seminary DL program, distributed learning. So, it's, it's, so I went to, being a good state employee, I went to my office, and for the next first two hours of the day, I'm on my computer looking at the Luther Seminary DL program. So it's a hybrid program where you can do online studying and intensive studies a couple weeks in January and June in St. Paul, Minnesota. And yes, it's freaking cold in January in St. Paul, Minnesota. A couple weeks ago, I was there, and it was three below, you know, walking to class. But I got through it. So here I am. Have my master's in counseling, working on my MDiv, and right now I was talking to Aaron yesterday, and everybody across the nation, every congregation I know is having a congregational meeting, voting on a budget. And hopefully, the, uh, right now, probably the congregation that I will hopefully work at in June just voted on their, on their budget. So I, I should know this afternoon if I have a church I'll be working at starting in June. So that's my story. That's who I am. So you can now say you know a transgender person who went through a lot of grief, a lot of anxiety, and was lifted up by the Spirit. I was called to go become a pastor. And to be honest, I applied for candidacy 
at, for the ELCA just so they could tell me no. So I could have an out. So I could get up and say, well, I wanted to be a pastor, but they won't let me because I'm trans. But you know what? I'm going to be an ELCA pastor. Now, through my eyes, of a tra as a transgender Latina, how do I justify being a pastor? Because so many times this book is used against me. And that's the issue. It's just a book. The living word of God is Jesus Christ. Man has tried to put together words to understand and comprehend and get the message out. The problem is, we weren't meant to read the Bible. We were meant to experience Scripture. When Paul was writing those letters, those letters were meant to be read out loud. They were meant to be heard and experienced. The people that wrote them, yes, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write them, but we are inspired by the Holy Spirit to hear what they have to say. And one Jewish tradition that I love is called Midrash. So essentially, if you have three rabbis, you get five opinions. And that's what we have lost sometimes in the Lutheran church, Protestant churches, Catholic churches, especially Catholics. I'm not going to get into that. Because we have to live and experience. And how is the Spirit entering us when we listen to those words? How is the Spirit interacting with all of us? How do we let go of our human desires and wants? Those who are persecuted for justice sake, are persecuted because those who have power, those who want to hold on deeply to that gender binary because they are invested in that gender binary. What happens if you let it go? And how can we read in the word that that is capable of being done? I'm going to start off with Genesis. I have about, what, five minutes left? <laughs> okay. I've gone a bit long on me. But I just want to give you one example. We're going to start off in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make us humankind. Let us make humankind. That's NRSV, humankind. Now, the NRSV is known as the most literal. So they try to come as close to what they believe was originally in the text. Now, if you're were to go to the King James Version, that would be read man. It was Adam. Adam was man. And so it would read, and let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So that's like saying guys. Man encompasses everyone. Why? Because that's a patriarchal, dominant way of saying humankind is man. Because they, they controlled everything. So if you control everything, who are you going to put first? Man. 
In the NRSV, they try and change it around. The NIV says mankind, so they're taking a step left to right. NRSV says humankind. But what's interesting is in first Genesis, man, when I read the second part, it's zakar, and woman is nekeba. So all of a sudden, man is not Adam. Adam is humanity. Zakar is a man, and Akeba is a woman. Now, if you go back, if you go forward into Genesis 2, you have to remember in Genesis 1, man, Adam was made at the same time. Zakar, Zakar and, Ish, and um, Nekeba were made at the same time. Now, the one that most people remember is the second Genesis story where Adam, Adam was made first. And then, because Adam couldn't find a really good playmate out of all the animals, God put Adam to sleep, took a rib out, and created Eve. Now, Adam in that is called Ish. And woman is called Isha, out of Ish. And again, the Adam is the being. Now, there was a writer, Suzanne DeWitt Hall, who wrote for a Huffington Post, and so I'm stealing this fragrantly and adding to it. If Adam, if God put Adam to sleep and took out a rib, he would be cloning another human being from that rib, right? So when you clone something or someone, you make an exact duplicate. Does that make sense? So if you pull out the rib and you clone, you should make another Adam. But God, in fact, according to the book, makes Eve, which makes Eve the first transgender woman. <laughs> Just saying. So when you read the book, there's one thing that always just gives me gray hairs when somebody said, well, I read the Bible and it didn't do anything for me. Did you read it to someone or did you have someone read it to you? When I prepare a sermon, I go to a, a Bible app called Bible IS because you can pick up all kinds of different translations to it and they read it out loud to you. Although I have to say that if you're going to do it at 11 o'clock at night and the devil is speaking, it really scares me. Because <laughs> they come up with somebody, and Jesus, you shall go to the top of my, oh my God. <laughs> but listen to it. Read it. And one of my professors that I dearly love said, the goal is to read a passage a hundred times. And the hundred and first time, something new occurs to you. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. So if I've made you a little uncomfortable, I'm glad. Because you need to be made a little uncomfortable. And I'm not telling anyone in this room who typically wears jeans all day that they need to be wearing a skirt. I'm not advocating. I'm telling you my story. So that the next time you run into someone who doesn't fit your concept of male or female, that you will say, 
you know, I respect you as a human being, and I'm not exactly sure how to address you. Would you how would you like me to use pronouns? And sometimes I'll say, call me they. I prefer they. Or call me by my name. I don't like pronouns. It's their decision. And respecting that decision. Because they should have the agency. They should have the ability to determine who they are as a child of God and how God created them in God's image, not your image, not in a supermodel's image, not in the image of the people that you see around them, but the image of God. And if you want to see the face of God, turn to the person next to you or look in a mirror. For that, for you, are the image of God. Thanks be to God. Wow. Thank you very much. Um, we have a few minutes for questions. We're just going to go right into it. So if you have something you'd like to ask Nicole, uh, please raise your hand. Bob, do we have anything on the uh, that has been texted in? Okay. Yeah. Marie. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering... Um, do you have any books or any films, anything that you would recommend if we want to educate ourselves further? Um, if you want stories of other trans people, trans body, trans cells. Um, it's put out by a group up in Berkeley. Um, and it's kind of like an encyclopedia. So it's not one of those books that you pull out and start starting from the beginning, look and see, for example, if you meet somebody who is gender fluid or possibly a trans man, look in the index and find stories, because I think that's where the power is. It's trying to understand people's stories and narratives. That's what Jesus tries to do for us. It gives us stories and narratives. Another one is called Trans Kin. And I plug that because the editor is one of my dear friends, Eleanor Hubbard, so trans kin. And there are a lot of really good books that are coming out these days. Um, but trans body, trans cells would be a good place to start. Somebody else? I thought I saw another hand. Right back here. Yes. Hi, thanks for your story. Um, I was raised Lutheran, and uh, and granted that was you know it was like twenty years ago that I was going to a Lutheran church. But um, I'm curious. It sounds like your story was very positive in terms of the Lutheran church accepting you as a trans woman. Did you run into any resistance at any point in that? Because when I was a Lutheran, like there was definitely like an anti-gay bias and and that sort of thing. Um, there there are different different sects of Lutheranism. So you have the Wisconsin Synod, which makes the Roman Catholic Church look liberal. <laughs> then you have this, the Missouri Synod, which is pretty much on par with the RC Church. And then we are the Evangelical Lutheran Church. We are the Lutherans the Missouri Synod warned you about. <laughs> Out of 10,000 or so ELCA churches, there are probably 
60, 600 that are RIC, Reconciling in Christ. They've made that commitment to be open and welcoming. So we haven't even met 10%. So it's been a struggle. When I go to Synod Assembly, we have, we have what's called Synods. Um, so my Synod is a Rocky Mountain Synod, Colorado, um, New Mexico, El Paso, essentially a little bit of Wyoming, a little bit of um, Utah. So I, will, I have spoken several times at Synod Assembly. And there are definitely pastors who will come up and raise me up and ask me questions and I go to their congregations to speak. And I will also have pastors who come up to me, look at me and turn around and walk the other way. And when we were going through uh, a process in 2009 to determine whether or not pastors who are in gay, lesbian, committed relationships can be married or be in same, uh, same gender blessings, um, I had one pastor, a female pastor, who came up to me with the finger in the face and said, we're not going to accept your evil homosexual agenda. I'm like, I'm transgender. <laughs> They're like, you're, and I should take that finger out of my face. <laughs> and if you don't like it, then maybe you should go over to the Missouri Synod. I'm like, oh, but you're a woman. They won't ordain women. Yeah, so it's every day. I'm hoping that the church will open its doors a little bit more. And I'm happy to say that, my, that the bishop and the bishop's staff uh, have supported me. I've asked Aaron to take some pictures of me today because they wanted some action pictures to include in um, Living Lutheran, a magazine. And I just had an article featured in The Christian Century um, on January 18th. Uh, Christian Century is a, a magazine that is read by a lot of mainline Protestant pastors, and the title of it was Being Trans. And they were, uh, they wanted to put that out just before the inauguration to show how the church is moving. And so some, I've, I won't read the comments, but I'm sure there are some positive comments, and I'm also sure that our people are just telling me where to go and how to get there and how quick I'll be there. Right. Yeah. All right, one more question, perhaps. Yeah, I think I, Caleb, did you have yours up? Yeah. I'm sorry I talk so much. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Nicole, thanks for coming out again this morning. Good to see you. Um, so how do you see, unfortunately, not only what's happening in the LGBT, um, LGBT and community, but trans community, but all of the bigotry that's happening, what bigger conversations are you engaged in to fight what's happening within our country right now? And mm -hmm. what, what can we do as a local body, along with a national body, uh, have a bigger presence to change? You know, the abolition, ab abolitionist movement was pushed forward by Quakers and a Methodist church. They were active. They were speaking out. They were taking action. And I think a lot of what has happened to Protestant churches, you know, Lutherans are known for being so nice. Well, it's time to stop being nice and start putting forward, you know, when people say, what would Jesus do? They turn over the tables, tell you to sell your stuff and give it to the poor. And so we have to stand up and we have to speak out. I was happy and honored and privileged to be a speaker at March on Denver last week. And I started with Martin Niemoller's phrase. 
Remember, and everybody seems to know that. First they came for the socialists, I didn't speak out because I was a socialist, and then they came for me, and there was nobody left to speak for me. He said that after the war, out of extreme guilt, because he worked only to protect the church from the Nazi government. He didn't work towards saving people. Yes, he spent seven years in prison because of it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who worked towards and advocated and helped Jews escape, was hung two weeks before the, the, his concentration camp was liberated. Those who will be persecuted, who will work for justice sake, will see the kingdom of God. So be loud. When you call your, your state, state and local and federal uh, representatives, tell them you are a person of God. Tell them, Jesus told me that I have to speak out because this action is wrong. We have to be working for other people. We have to be lifting people up. Have you considered becoming a sanctuary church? There was one, a UU church in downtown Denver who had somebody living in their basement for nine months because they were about ready to be deported. So I'm now I'm acting and working with a group in, in um, Denver and hopefully bring it to Boulder County where we will have um, sanctuary churches. So would you be willing to have immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers live in your church? Those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. And those are hard questions. And if you can't remodel your building so you make sure you have a shower and a bedroom and someplace, how, would you be willing to help another church? Support a family. Willing to make dinners and breakfast and take care of kids. Because if the breadwinner is, is living in the basement of a church, they can't go out and make a living. So what's, what are their kids going to do? Are you willing to help foster kids whose, whose parents are trying to gain asylum? That's my two cents. Wow. Well, Nicole, thank you so much. Um, yes. Yeah.